So a couple months ago, when uh, Eric began the uh, book of Colossians, you, you all will remember he uh, wrote and sung a song to, to uh, kick that off on important Epaphras. And when Kevin, as he usually does, writes the grace group questions, one of the questions, I know not all the groups use them, we do, because he's in our group, but, uh, but uh, one of the questions that he wrote was, has Pastor Eric um, initiated a new standard here to have a new song for every sermon? <laughs> to which I emphatically, during our grace group, um, said, no, he has not, to which I imagine John would agree, right? However, it was pointed out to me by my dear wife, who was sitting there, that my very next sermon, again, this was several months ago, was going to be on the topic that you see in your bullet, to which there are thousands of songs in the secular uh, music that are better than left unplayed. So, um, we will not do that, and I will not sing a song for you, okay? (laughs) With that, we need to pray. (laughs) Father, (laughs) Lord, we we come to you this morning um, to the very next line in the text. It's been uh, four months since I've been in the pulpit, but this is where we left off. And Father, it's it's a hard topic, but one that we need to understand and we need to address in the world today. Father, I pray that you uh, um, give us grace, give us mercy. Help us through your Holy Spirit to hear and to understand and to um, take this truth in and apply it to our life. Because it's not just, as as I will share, it is not just about the letter, but it is about the attitude of the heart. Father, may our hearts be pure before you. Again, may you give us grace where we stumble. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. All right, so this morning, as I just said, we're going to return to the Sermon on the Mount, picking up where we left off several months ago. And we're going to do so in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to start making your way there. Jesus had said in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 20. And that would have been a shocking statement, for the people of that era. The scribes, the Pharisees, would have been held up as the models of righteousness. Supposedly, God's standard. Yet Jesus says that our righteousness must surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. How can that be? If they're held up as the the models, how can that be? The difference is that the scribes and the Pharisees focused on outward conformance to the law. Outward conformance, while Jesus looked upon the inward motivation of the heart. And to emphasize that point, Jesus examines six specific examples, and we're going to take each one of them in turn, but six specific examples from the law of God and provides the correct interpretation of that law. It's important that we understand that Jesus isn't expanding the law of God, okay? That's an important point we need to understand through all six of these examples over the coming months. Jesus isn't expanding the law of God. He's not adding to the Scriptures, nor is He reinterpreting the Scriptures. The pattern 
that Jesus uses is consistent in every case. He cites the law by saying, you have heard that it was said. And he begins his interpretation by saying with authority, but I say to you. And in every case, Jesus' interpretation provides the text original and true meaning. Okay, the original and true meaning. Jesus isn't exploring some new meaning of the text. Rather, he's revealing to his original listeners and to us what the God's law has always required. The law has never, never been solely about outward conformance. It's a total and complete submission to him that's manifested by obedience from the heart. Last time I was in the pulpit, we focused on the first of the six examples. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. And Jesus not only addressed the commandment against murder, but he looked at the hard attitudes that lead to that sin, right? This morning, we're going to move on to Jesus' second example, the commandment against the sin of adultery. In the same manner that he did in his first example, Jesus is going to affirm the commandment and then dig, dig deeper into the heart motivation Turn with me, as I said, to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 27, okay? Verse 27, where Jesus says to those that are gathered, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So God's command against adultery is given as the seventh commandment in Exodus 20.14, and repeated again in Deuteronomy 5.18, when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, verse 27, verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said. He's merely repeating the word of God, which the scribes and the Pharisees should know very, very well. You shall not commit adultery. The commandment is clear. What is adultery? What is adultery? Adultery is defined as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. Now, as I looked that up in the dictionary, I saw a couple extra words that were absolutely... Words change as the culture change. And there were words that were definitely outside of biblical categories. So I removed that. Voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. It's a very serious sin, and it should be treated as such. Leviticus 18.20, God said, And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. According to the law, the punishment for adultery was death. 
If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the, and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Deuteronomy 22.22 But the world today wants to minimize the severity of the sin by using terms to water it down. We call it an affair, or a fling, or maybe even an indiscretion. And like most categories of sin, we'll call it anything we can in order to justify it in our hearts and minds. Use the biblical word. Call it what it is. You shall not commit adultery. But why, why is adultery such an offense in the eyes of God? The first reason is that adultery defiles the covenant of marriage that God himself established in the beginning. Okay, the first reason is that adultery defiles the covenant of marriage that God himself established in the beginning. That covenant of marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life. That was God's plan from the very beginning. Not a social construct instituted by man. Not a social construct that is subject to change. One man, one woman for life. I'm going to preach at the end of January on, on divorce. We will bring that up again. Jesus quoted and affirmed that same text in Matthew uh, 19.5. Okay, the, the, theref- oh, I'm sorry. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24. He quoted that again. Jesus did in, in Matthew 19.5. The Apostle Paul emphasized that marriage is the perfect metaphor for the relationship between Christ and His church. Ephesians 5.22. It's a holy union, and therefore should be protected. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. adulterous, Hebrews 13.4 The second reason is is the character of God. Second reason is the character of God. The chosen people of God were to reflect the character of God in the promised land. So ought we. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You, therefore, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Leviticus 18, 1-5. But then a little bit further, a little, uh, in the same book, God said, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself therefore. And be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11.44a. And part of holy living, reflecting God's character, is sexual purity. And purity in all things is consistent with the character and the nature of God. Now the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is that they looked only at the letter of the law. They could take the commandment 
you shall not commit adultery, and they could check off another box, right? I haven't murdered anyone. We did that one four months ago. Check. I haven't committed adultery. Check. And as long as they hadn't committed the physical act, they were good, at least in their own minds and in the eyes of the people. But Jesus looks beyond the physical act to the attitude of the heart. So after quoting, and by default affirming, the commandment in verse 27, Jesus provides the interpretation in verse 28. He says, But I say to you, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5.28. And he moves past the focus on the act to the interstate, to the lustful look that may lead to the outward deed. And by doing so, Jesus very closely ties, this is important, ties the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, to the tenth. You shall not covet. Ties the two. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, to the tenth. Do not covet. Um, The sense of the word covet is to desire, to wish, to long for, or crave something to a fault or detrimentally, especially the property of another person. To covet, then, means to long to possess something that you cannot or ought not have. Commandment against coveting itself covers a lot of ground, but the command specifically mentions coveting your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Again, it covers a lot of ground, but it specifically mentions your neighbor's wife. Exodus 20, verse 17. See, the sin of adultery doesn't just happen. Doesn't just happen. Begins with a look. It grows into a longing. And it ends in death. James, the brother of Jesus, describes the process of temptation and sin that grips our heart. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts tempts no one. But here's, that was the setup. Here's what I wanted to say. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James 1, 13-15. There's a song that's out, or was out, by Casting Crowns, entitled Slow Fade. And it does an excellent job of explaining and warning against this danger. Begins, Be careful, little, little eyes, what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands as darkness pulls the strings. Be careful, little feet, where you go. For it's a little feet behind you that are sure to follow. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade, 
Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. See, the act of adultery doesn't just happen. It's a slow fade. It takes time. It's a process. It begins with a second glance. But then thoughts begin to invade our mind and choices and compromises are made along the way. And by the time one physically commits an act of adultery, the decision to do so has already been made. It's a series of little steps and compromises that turn black and white into shades of gray. And once that happens, once our consciences are seared, it's not a big leap to complete the act. Some cases, it's what we watch on TV or movies, what we see in the media, even commercials, what we browse on the internet. It's the lyrics that we listen to in our music. Perhaps it's a relationship with a coworker or a friend that develops in a direction that it should not. I once had a brother, not from this body, who confessed the joy that he felt on phone calls with a remote coworker. He feared that he was filling a need in that relationship that should only be filled by his wife. He was right. He was wise to confess that and make changes to address it. In every case, we make decisions, some small, some large, about what we take in and what we expose ourselves to. Every decision made forms who we are. Are we one who honors God in our choices or are the compromises that we make leading us away from Him? The New Testament is filled with warnings against sexual sin. Sexual sin stands, as I said before, in opposition to the character, the nature, and holiness of God. In fact, God's Word is very clear. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. 1 Corinthians 6.9 He says, do not be deceived with good reason. Because we tend to deceive ourselves. Sometimes we even want to deceive ourselves. We think that the small choices, decisions, and thoughts are no big deal. But they are. And eternity hangs in the balance. He says that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. God's will, God's will for us is purity. It is that we grow in holiness and being conformed to the image of His Son. For this is the will of God. Sometimes we wonder, well, what is the will of God for my life? This verse is the will of God for my life. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7. Sanctification, which is God's will for us, is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. See, this work takes place through our cooperation with the Holy Spirit as He transforms us into the men and the women of God that He would have us be. And that's not only true when we talk about sexual purity, but in every aspect of our being. Every thought, every action, every decision or choice is important and either makes us more like Christ or leads us away from Him. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 28. Verses 29 to 30, Jesus addresses what our response ought to be for sin and temptation. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus is not advocating for self-mutilation. Mutilation, there you go. Not advocating self-mutilation. Rather, what he's doing is he's employing a rhetorical device of hyperbole in order to demonstrate the seriousness of sin. He does this elsewhere in his teaching. For example, Luke 14.26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, in even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not teaching that one should hate their family. Far from it. But that their, their devotion to him should be incomparably greater. Right? So he's using that rhetorical device of hyperbole. In this case, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. The eye is the medium through which one is tempted to lust. Verse 28, the sin addresses the one who looks. Okay, The one who looks with the eye at a woman with lustful intent. But since lust is an issue of the heart rather than the eye, gouging out the eye ultimately won't help. You will still be left with your other eye and with a heart that's predisposed towards sin. Same way Jesus says in verse 30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And while the eye represents the medium through which one is tempted to lust, the hand represents the physical actions that result. Again, since lust and the physical acts that follow are a matter of the heart, removing one's hand won't solve the problem either. You're still left with a hand and the heart that's in rebellion to God. So collectively, collectively, what Jesus is saying through his use of hyperbole in verses 29 and 30 is that sin is very, very serious. And that it must be dealt with drastically because of its deadly effects. What are the deadly effects? 
The alternative, metaphorically, to having one's eyes gouged out or hand amputated is according to both verses 29 and 30, to have your whole body thrown into hell. Those are your choices. And it's better to lose a member of your body than to bear the eternal consequence for sin in hell. So if something in your life is causing you to sin or to stumble, no matter how precious it might be, like an eye or a hand, throw it away. Throw it away. Get rid of it. Actual adultery is a physical act, but the sin begins as a thought, desire, or plan in one's heart or mind. And only a change of heart can banish this sin from our lives. And a changed heart comes from God alone. Earlier in the service, Doug read from Psalm 51. Psalm 51, after David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he confessed his sin and he poured out his repentance before God in the first nine verses. But in verse 10, in verse 10, he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. A clean heart and a renewed spirit is an act of God. That's why he prays to God, create in me. Do, you do this. But the Holy Spirit works in us and through us as we take the necessary steps to put actual sin to death in our daily lives. Several months ago, the men of grace shared our retreat together over at Higher Ground. And the title for our weekend was Kill It. And our topic was the mortification of sin. And we focused most, much of our attention on uh, Romans 8.13, which says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And rather than the word death, the King James Version uses the word mortify. Okay, Mortify means to put to death. And as the verse says, we do this by the Spirit. It says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So we do it by the Spirit. But it also says, you put to death. Okay, We do it by the Spirit, but it's you who put the, to, to death these deeds of the body. It's both and. It's both and. We have a major role. Our sanctification or growth and holiness is a cooperative work between us and the Holy Spirit. And we actively, we actively do the work, but He gives us the power to do so and affects the change within us. So I want to give you a few principles for putting to, to death the deeds of the body. When I first started this sermon series, I mentioned a book by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. And I told you then that I was going to steal liberally from him, so I'm doing so today. Um, this is mostly, or at least the principles are from him. What follows is from me. So the first principle is we must never feed the flesh. Never feed the flesh. Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, Romans 13. Romans 13, 14. If there's a fire within you, 
don't pour gasoline on the fire. If you do, there will be an explosive flame and you will get burned. If there's a situation that you know causes temptation for you, remove it from your life. Pluck out the eye. Cut off the hand. Maybe it's TV or movies. Maybe it's what we browse on the internet or the lyrics that we listen to in our music. Maybe it's a relationship with a specific individual or group of individuals that cause you to stumble. Whatever it is, remove it from your life and make no provision for the flesh. This isn't about legalism. True holiness concerns itself with pleasing God glorifying Him, ministering to the glories of Jesus Christ. And when we keep that in the forefront, we can take the necessary steps to mortify the flesh and to honor Him. I recall many years ago being in Indianapolis for a large Promise Keepers event. I understand there were a number of men from Grace that were there as well. So this predated us um, coming here to Grace. So this was a long time ago. But I remember this. I remember it vividly. The speaker was Dr. Tony Evans, and he was speaking on sexual purity. And as he shared, he described a specific situation in which there was temptation. His voice got softer and softer as he drew 60,000 men into the story. Finally, he said, as seriously and as softly as he could, Men, if you ever find yourself in this situation, here is what I want you to do. Then he screamed at the top of his lungs, which I'm not going to do for you today, but I have done with the youth. Run. Run. But he had that echoed through the stadium. Running is biblical. Running is biblical. The Apostle Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee, run. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, 1 Corinthians 6.18. So when you find yourself in a situation where you know you will have the temptation to stumble, remove yourself from the situation quickly. If it is a person or group of people, excuse yourself. If it's the internet or TV, log out. Flee from anything that will cause you to sin. Second principle is that we must deliberately, and that's a key word, restrain the flesh and deal with every suggestion and insinuation of evil. Watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak, Matthew 26, 41. We need to be deliberately in the battle. Deliberately in the battle. Spirit will lead us and guide us and give us strength for the battle. But we need to be in the fight. Like Paul, we need to discipline our bodies and keep it under control. Lest after, lest after preaching to others, we ourselves should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians nine twenty seven. For no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Run. Run. Third, we need to realize the price that has been paid to deliver us from sin. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper. And we talked about that being you know, a visual aid of, of, of the gospel, of the truth of, of what he has done. We remember his death. We remember his resurrection. We remember the price that was paid that we might be redeemed. Jesus paid the ultimate price to free us from the penalty and the consequence of sin. And because of his great work, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7. But Jesus died not only to free us from the penalty of sin, but also from its power. Also from its power, which he does through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We're freed from the penalty, but we are also freed from its power. Which leads us to our final point. We need to recognize our absolute need for the Holy Spirit. We have things to do as we mortify the flesh. But we need the power and the help that the Holy Spirit alone can give us. For those of us who are in Christ, God the Holy Spirit is in us, indwelling us, empowering us to live for Him. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Our work, Philippians 2.13, our work and the power of the Holy Spirit are both necessary. Both necessary. I'm going to end with these words from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones that I believe summarizes this so well. And trying to paraphrase this would be a futile act. So let me just read directly um, his final thoughts on this. The two sides are, two sides being our work, and the Holy Spirit. The two sides are absolutely essential. If we try to mortify the flesh alone in our own strength and power, we shall produce an utterly false type of sanctification, which is not really sanctification at all. But if we realize the power and the true nature of sin, if we realize the awful grip that it has on man and its polluting effect, then we shall realize that we are poor in spirit and utterly feeble. And we shall plead constantly for that power which the Holy Spirit alone can give us. And with this power, we shall proceed to pluck out the eye and cut off the hand, mortify the flesh, and thus deal with the problem. In the meantime, he is still working in us, And we shall go on until finally we shall see him face to face and stand in his presence, faultless and blameless, without spot and without rebuke. The scribes and the Pharisees looked only at the letter of the law. They took the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and figured they hadn't committed the physical act, they were safe. But Jesus looks beyond the physical act to the attitudes of the heart. 
And with his authority, with his authority as the incarnate word, Jesus said, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 28. It's the lustful look, the coveting and desiring that which you should not have that is the actual sin. It's very rare when someone stumbles into the sin of adultery. More often than not, it's little choices and decisions along the way that can put us in that position. For that reason, Jesus speaks about taking radical action to deal with the temptation in our lives. Your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Why? Because it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body thrown into hell. Do everything you can to mortify, put to death, the sin in your life with the goal of glorifying God in your body, knowing all the while that it's the Holy Spirit working in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. May we be like Job, who God Himself called a blameless and righteous man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Evil, Job, Job 1.8, who said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job 31.1. All the while, trusting in the Holy Spirit who enables us to fulfill that covenant. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a difficult topic. Lord, like the Pharisees, we could, most of us could probably check off the box. Yep, haven't done that one. But in reality, men and women alike, we deal with temptations. Temptations that come at us from the world, from the culture, and most importantly, from inside in our sinful nature to long for things that we should not have, to covet that which we should not have. Father, I pray that each and every one of us who read these words in Scripture and and hear this message, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit you would empower us to be pure in this area of our life. Not out of a sense of legalism, but out of a desire, a true, earnest desire to please you in all things. To please you and to be more and more every every day conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Who said, be holy as I am holy. Lord, may that be so in each one of our lives. We thank you for the grace that you give us. We thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. We thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you can indeed um, give us a clean heart and remove our iniquities. We thank you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Please rise for the benediction. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.